Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So the Nation's Leap window has come and gone, and congratulations, everybody. We did it. We qualified for the next round of the Nation's League. Great job, everyone, all around. Now, I, I think going into this window, qualification was never really in doubt or never really priority one. I think there was a bunch of questions regarding different player groups, different players coming in, and potentially different tactical setups that were going to be tested over these two games. And, and that's the thing that I, I think is really important to evaluate as we come out of this window. Now, we saw a lot of interesting things. We saw a whole heck of a lot of goals against Grenada and some really good performances there. And then a kind of slog of a game against El Salvador where it felt like the ball was just not hitting the back of the net. Uh, maybe a little bit more illuminating game against El Salvador uh, as we see the team together, the A-team, for the first real competitive game since the World Cup. Now, what do we learn in this window? We're going to go through and evaluate each position group, evaluate the different things that we saw in this window that maybe differentiated themselves tactically from the Greg Berhalter era. And we're, we're going to discuss... Uh, what things we can take from this two-game window moving forward. All that and more on this episode of The Yank Report. What's up? My name is Sam. This is The Yank Report, a show all about American soccer. If you're into that, hit the subscribe button. We're going to get to the fullbacks right after a word from this week's sponsor. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your college basketball betting this season. Get analysis of every play, prop, and point at Bet Online. You'll find the latest odds, bracket contests, team matchups, and game trends at Bet Online. Updated odds for everything from live games, the conference championships, right through to the Final Four and championship game. BetOnline is your college basketball headquarters this season. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE to receive your bonus. BetOnline.ag where the game starts. Coming into this window, I think the big questions about the fullbacks first and foremost was regarding Serginho Dest. Um, Des just hasn't played since January for AC Milan. He's had um, a, a really storied and disappointing few years of a career uh, that started out just seemingly like he would be one of the top right backs in the world, or, or at least one of the top right back prospects in the world. At this point, it seems like he's going to be um, at the end of his loan to AC Milan. He's going to be heading back to Barcelona and Barcelona is probably not going to utilize him. So he's going to be figuring things out from there. Uh, which is a really disappointing spot to be considering we know the quality that this player has and what he can be at his peak, uh, but he's just not that right now. And I think some of the defensive sides of his game is, is really holding him back from being considered one of those top right back prospects in the world. And I think we saw a little bit of that in this window. Uh, he didn't play against Grenada, but he did get the start against El Salvador. And while I wouldn't say he had a bad game and he didn't really get tested defensively very much, he just wasn't that incredible talent that we've seen in, in in games past for the U.S. men's national team. He wasn't really just blowing by players on the dribble. You didn't see that that him oozing with confidence, which he normally does. He was a very good and competent right back for us, uh, but a, a far cry from that player that we saw in the World Cup. And that's a bit of a concern moving forward. Now, maybe it would be more of a concern if it wasn't for the emergence of Joe Scally. Scally has, has been looking really good recently from Borussia Mönchengladbach. There's actually rumors that he could be transferred to the Premier League. There's interest there for him. Uh, but currently for the U.S. men's national team, he seems to be the odd man out as Dest and Robinson are both locked in starters. But maybe a little bit more on that in a second. I, I think Scally had a really impressive showing against Grenada, uh, not just because 
you know, Grenada is not the strongest team and they weren't going to test us all that well defensively, even though they did in spurts. And I think Scally held up well on, on the left wing. But I think as we move to Anthony Robinson, um, Anthony Robinson's weakness for the U.S. men's national team is his ability with the ball at his feet, is his combination play, um, is his ability to connect short passes, to build out of the back, things like that. I think Greg Berhalter really mitigated a lot of Anthony Robinson's weaknesses uh, throughout the World Cup qualifying phase whenever he tactically decided to put Anthony Robinson way high up in the field in the buildup and leave that left back space available for either a midfielder or maybe Christian Pulisic to drop back into. His issues on the ball were mitigated there, or at least hidden. What we saw in this game against El Salvador was large stretches where the combination play was really nice, where uh, Weston McKinney and Yunus Musa, Christian Pulisic, Gio Arena, uh, even Zendejas at times were really putting together some nice interchanges of passes and things like that. But whenever the ball reached Robinson's feet, there was just a little bit more to be desired there. He's not going to be that player that's really going to help you break down defenses with his combination play and his movement off the ball. And, and I think that gives an opportunity for Joe Scally to potentially fill in that gap. We know Joe Scally is very strong defensively, but I think he does offer a little bit more technically. He may not be the athlete that Anthony Robinson is with that ability to get down the touchline um, and just bust butt and recover on defense uh, at, at an incredible rate. But I, I don't know. There's just something about the way that Joe Scally plays, the way that we saw him play against Grenada, that really made me feel like this is more of a, a question moving forward than people are giving it credit for. As far as Brian Reynolds, I, I felt like he was the weakest of the four. He still is, is a tremendous athlete and can get down the touch line really well. Uh, but even against Grenada, we saw that he's just... Uh, looked a bit off the pace from the rest of the group whenever it came to the build-up phases and whenever it came to the intricate passing and the movement off the ball and all those things that we're kind of criticizing uh, Anthony Robinson for here. I think the same can be said for Brian Reynolds, but even at a lower level. I think he's got some work to do before he's really considered uh, a, a player that's going to be regularly called into the U.S. Men's National Team. I think there's some other fullbacks out there in the pool that may get a look ahead of him uh, moving forward. At center back, I think there's only really one thing worth discussing here, and that's that Miles Robinson still has a place in the first team. And, and this is not something I was expecting. Coming into this group, coming off of that that huge injury where he was uh, away from the game for an entire season, I thought that there was going to be some issues there. I thought he wouldn't quite be the same athlete that he was pre-injury, but man, oh man, his performance against El Salvador, maybe the man of the match performance, if not Weston McKinney, it was Miles Robinson. He was phenomenal, and it's it's his ability defensively that really sets him apart. He just doesn't lose duels in the air. He's incredible at, at snuffing out counterattacks and making sure those don't beat us, whether that's just winning the ball straight off of the opposition as they're receiving it, beating them to the ball, or putting in that tactical foul that allows the defense to get back and, and doesn't put us in, in compromising positions. If he does get beat um, on, on the transition, he has the speed and the athleticism to get back. I mean, there was that one moment where uh, he was beaten with that ball where, where the attacker was offsides and Robinson was able to recover and put in the tackle. Even though he was offsides by like four yards, he still was able to, to make up that ground and put in that tackle. He's phenomenal defensive center back. Maybe our best one-on-one -on -one defender in the pool right now. Uh, the issue with Miles Robinson is always going to be his, his ability with the ball at his feet. I think he put in a competent shift, and, and that's normally what you can expect from him. He's not really going to put you in danger, but he's not really going to put in line-breaking passes or break down the defense either. So you, you get into that position where you're starting to um, have to decide, you know, do you want a center back 
a, a right center back who's going to shut down the defense and just be incredible one-on-one and, and a defender that you could put out on an island and maybe uh, put a few more players forward just because of his incredible athletic gifts and his incredible defending one-on-one? Or do you want somebody who's got a, a bit better with the ball at their feet, can maybe play some long diagonals, can maybe play some line-breaking passes? Uh, that's sort of the, the question you're going to have moving forward. I think Tim Ream is still our number one center back, but Ream at his age, uh, he's not likely to be a part of the group that that steps onto the field for the 2026 World Cup. It's just a matter of time at this point. But I think Miles Robinson, whether he's the number one starter or not, is definitely still in the conversation. As we move into the midfield, the big question coming in was, what was this group going to look like operating in more of a double pivot than that classic six with Tyler Adams at the back uh, that we were so used to seeing during World Cup qualifying? Now, I... it. The system, it was a little bit different in ways than we saw during World Cup qualifying, but there was still, especially in the buildup, it felt like we were kind of playing in the same shape, more or less. Uh, The big difference was Tyler Adams was not on the field. I think against El Salvador, uh, Weston McKinney stepped in and was often that deepest lying playmaker, like that, that six nominally for the U.S. men's national team. And he was really really good in this position we know that uh Weston whenever he's at his best has some long balls in him and I think he was spraying them all over the park against El Salvador he played that really nice ball that sprung Ricardo Pepe for the for the uh goal um that that was the only goal in this game but it wasn't his only great ball of the game Weston of course is a tremendous athlete he he has a tremendous amount of range he just adds so much in so many different areas of the park uh, a really nice showing for him. Now, we also got to see Luca Della Torre and Yunus Musa in this camp. Luca Della Torre started in the Grenada game alongside Weston McKinney, and Yunus Musa started in the El Salvador game uh, alongside Weston McKinney. And I got to say, Luca Della Torre has the best PR going right now in all of the U.S. men's national team, at least on Twitter. Uh, there are a lot of strong Luca Della Torre supporters. A lot of people that feel like he should be starting uh, in a double pivot alongside Wes McKinney or alongside Adams over Eunice Musa, that he's one of our top two midfielders right now. Um, I just, I have a hard time agreeing with that. I think whenever we look at the game, I mean, there's a lot of different phases of the game. We all understand that. And I think whenever you look at a player like Eunice Musa, Musa is so strong in so many of those different phases. I mean, he's great in the buildup whether that means combination passes or, or maybe even a long pass to break us out of pressure. And then, of course, his phenomenal ability to drop a so- shoulder, beat a, a player in his own defensive third or in midfield and just run upfield and start a break. He is the best in our pool at doing that and is reliably able to do that and has become a reliable uh method of buildup for the U.S. men's national team since his arrival on the scene for the squad. Um, he's also great at stopping counters. He's great at recovering, I guess we'll call them rebounds, those those moments whenever the U.S. is in possession and we have a move in the final third and the defense is able to clear it. Musa scoops those balls up so much. Whenever Musa, Adams, and McKinney are in the field together, those second balls are just seem like they're automatically ours. Um, he's great in, in defending in the open field. and He's, he's really physical. The, the lackluster thing about Yunus Musa is his ability in the final third. He just doesn't offer you much creativity at all. And he be, kind of becomes a non-factor on the field whenever we get to that part of the field. And, and that's the area where a lot of people are calling for Luca Della Torre because he is stronger in that area of the field than Yunus Musa. Uh, I'd say Luca Della Torre is the second strongest midfielder that we have in the final third behind Wesson McKinney at this point. 
Uh, Luca Della Torre has tremendous comfort on the ball. I think we see that anytime he steps on the field. Uh, he's really strong in transition moments whenever he's able to run and, and put the def- defense on the heels and he's got runners in front of him. Um, it, it, the issue with Luca Della Torre is I think outside of those areas, I don't know that there's many areas where he's better than Eunice Musa or Wes McKinney or Tyler Adams. Um, I, I worry about him in transition moments. It feels like at least once a game, I see him coughing up a ball in the midfield whenever he's just caught in possession. It happened once against Grenada where he just got out-muscled. It happened once against El Salvador. The El Salvador one, he was put in a tough position, but still, I think those are areas where you see Adams and Musa and McKinney getting out of those spots and Luca Del Torre just, just doesn't. He he lacks, I guess, the uh, athleticism or the burst or or whatever it is to get the anticipation to get out of those spots. And, and the real bottom line for me whenever it comes to Luca Del Torre versus Yunus Musa is I just don't feel like Luca Del Torre, while he is better than Yunus Musa in the final third and he does play some nice balls, I don't feel like he does it enough and, and reliably enough to really justify all the other phases of the game where Yunus Musa is superior or Weston McKinney is superior. Uh, at this point for me, he's still an offensive substitute. He's not a player that you'd put in the game if the U.S. was protecting a lead. He's a player that you put in if the opposition is bunkered down and you really need a, uh, they're not attacking very much and we'll have the ability to um, dictate things from the midfield and, and Luca will have time and, and opportunity to uh, make things happen with the ball at his feet. I think we saw that in the first leg against El Salvador in the away leg where he came on late and was a real factor offensively in helping create that, that, uh, that goal that ended up tying it. I think that's the spot for him. I just don't feel like he's on that level right now. And that's really, we really want to see another midfielder step up and can be reliably in the mix with Eunice Moose and Wes McKinney and Tyler Adams. I think having a, a double pivot takes a little bit more pressure off of the MMA midfield at this point because we don't have to start all three of them every game and we can give one of them a rest. Um, however, I don't think that Luca Del Torre is quite on that tier with those other three players at the moment. Now, speaking of the double pivot, it only makes sense because we have Gio Reyna at the 10 spot. Now, throughout World Cup qualifying, fans had been calling and yearning and crying out to see Gio Reyna as a 10 and to see another attacking player on the field uh, to see if that might help the U.S. break down teams who were bunkering in, help the U.S. create chances in the final third, uh, create more goal scoring opportunities. And after two games, I mean, it was okay. I think you saw the potential there. I think you saw that, especially in that El Salvador game, which was a little bit more contested, a little bit better competition. There was some really nice sequences where the team just felt a little bit off, but maybe on another night, the U.S. is finishing a a bunch of those. Maybe just a little bit more cleaner at the right moment. And we're, we're we're putting together some really nice goal scoring sequences. I think that there's something there. I'd say Gio Reyna had a strong yet unspectacular two-game window. I think a lot of that comes down to Gio just flat out not having played very much recently for his club team. But still, we were able to put some really nice sequences together. I will still continue to say that against El Salvador, Gio had some really nice moments whenever he was in the half space. I mean, there was that moment where he beat a defender one-on-one whenever he was in the left channel. He had an opportunity to play in Zendejas, but instead he elected to... uh, smash a ball to the near post and it, it hit off the post very nearly the opening goal and it's that really it's that aggression that you really like seeing from Gio Reyna I think it was 
even though it was maybe a little bit selfish, it was probably the right move at that moment. And that's what you get from Gio whenever he's in these channels. You see it all the time for Borussia Dortmund. And I'm not saying that necessarily that Gio should play on the wing instead of um, in the center. I would love to see a lot more positional interchange, which is something we just really didn't see a lot of, even though we had all a blind of three attackers who were able to do that, who were all kind of used to playing in and out. I don't know if that was a directive from above or just players getting used to those new positions. But I think as we project down the road and we start thinking about the lineups that the U.S. could put on the field, that could be something really devastating. If we really start seeing Gio and Pulisic or maybe uh, whoever's playing on that right wing, whether it be Weah or Zendejas or Booth or uh, Bernard Aronson, whoever it is, all those guys can play all three of those positions. And if they start really getting used to fluidly moving in and out of those spots, I think it could be really devastating. Now, all that being said, I'm not entirely convinced that Gio Reyna playing at the 10 spot or, or having an attacking midfielder out there um, in that 10 spot as opposed to MMA is necessarily stronger than MMA right now. I think if the U.S. had a really competitive match uh, against a really strong opponent tomorrow, I think MMA is our best midfield there, um, even though Adams is out injured right now and it wouldn't make sense. I'm talking about hypothetically. I think that's still our strongest midfield. However, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity especially when playing against in CONCACAF against weaker opponents where having the additional attacker out there um, really could serve us well, uh, whether that's because we're able to rest players and rotate more players in or because we have an, an additional attacking player out there and it might help us create additional chances. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to test that out. And whenever you have incredible athletes who can shut down the transition moments on the field, like Tyler Adams, Wes McKinney, Eunice Musa and Miles Robinson, uh, it makes that all just all the more easy uh, moving forward. So I, I think it's a viable thing that uh, hopefully, whether it's Anthony Hudson or the next coach coming in, continues to experiment with. And we continue to go into games with this dual minded approach where if we're playing against weaker competitions, we can do this. Whereas if we're playing against stronger competition, we can do that which is a, a, a flexibility that we didn't see during the Greg Berhalter era, where it was more or less the same setup, game in, game out, regardless of the quality of the opposition, which frustrated a lot of fans. As we move on to the wingers, I think the big questions coming into this window were Taylor Booth and Alejandro Zendejas, and maybe Brendan Aronson as well, just kind of evaluating those three players. Uh, whenever it comes to Taylor Booth, Taylor Booth is the young guy coming in. He's 21 years old at this point. I think Christian Pulisic absolutely jinxed Taylor Booth when in the pre-camp press conference, he mentioned that Taylor Booth's strength was his delivery because throughout the two games, Taylor Booth delivered a lot of balls into the box, or should we say near the box, but not a lot of them were on target. He played some really rough crosses. Now, eventually, he did play a pretty nice ball to the back post that found uh, Ricardo Pepe, and Pepe was just not able to... Uh, get a great shot off there, but it was a, a nice bit of delivery from Taylor Booth, uh, which makes maybe makes up for some of those just terrible balls he put into the box. He looked a bit nervy, I felt like, over the two-game window, which is something you generally expect from a player getting their first caps, but I think the quality is there. I think you saw um, he was really running in behind where he came on, which was different than Zendayas and probably different than the way Brendan Aronson would play, maybe more uh, closely resembling what we would see from Tim Weah. He was stretching the defense. You saw his speed be a threat. You saw his confidence with the ball at his feet. And I think that he plays in a way that is, is more in tune with what we see 
from the rest of the group. I, I think that's a thing moving forward. Um, there's been a, a handful of names being brought up as potential guys coming into this group. Jordan Morris, after his wonderful four-goal weekend uh, this weekend in MLS, uh, Daryl DK, who played in this game as well, started against El Salvador. They're players in, in, in Jordan Morris and Daryl DK that are, that are talented and very good, but aren't necessarily great with the ball at their feet. And if we're having a lot of really nice passing sequences and being technical, like we saw throughout the game against El Salvador, um, if we have players on the field who can't really speak that language of ball movement and interchangeability and whatnot, it kind of throws the whole thing off, uh, which is where players like Booth and Zendejas come in. I think they can come in and, and do that reliably, uh, Taylor Booth especially. Um, I, I don't know that he had the best two-game window, but I feel like that there's there's better things moving forward with Taylor Booth. When it comes to Zendejas, Zendejas has looked good every time he's touched the field for the U.S. men's national team since he made his decision to play for the red, white, and blue recently. However, the game against El Salvador was was rough. It was it was the roughest we've seen from him. Uh, it, it looked like he was thinking out there instead of playing. There was just a number of times where he got caught in possession and turned the ball over. Uh, just not that energetic um, just ball of energy that we were used to seeing so far for the U.S. men's national team. A um, little bit concerned about his speed relative to his quickness. We know that he's very quick and that he can he can turn very quickly with the ball, very technical. But I, I don't know that he was testing the back line with runs in behind. I think that changed a lot when, um, when Taylor Booth came on and we started to see that. Uh, so Zendejas, I feel like, in my opinion, is a, is a notch below Taylor Booth right now as far as the pecking order. But it's not like a, a tremendous, tremendously far behind. I, I, I wonder, I, I think Zendejas is going to still be ahead of Jordan Morris as far as the depth chart. But um, that that's about where he's at right now. I don't know if Booth or Zendejas surpassed Brendan Aronson, who Brendan Aronson, you know, I, I don't know that he had the strongest game against Grenada, which led a lot of people to call for Zendejas to start against El Salvador, which is eventually what we saw. Um, I, I don't know if Brendan Aronson really shines in games where um, the opposition is sitting back and the U.S. has a ton of possession. He's a little bit better whenever the game is open. He's able to run at a back line and get in those transition moments and cause chaos that way. Um, I think I think Tim Weah is still the number one guy in that right wing position. We haven't seen him yet because he's out with the injury. And of course, he's been playing left wing for his club. I mean, left back for his club, Lil. Uh, but I think he's still the answer at right, right wing for us at the moment. Some good things from the winger group, but it wasn't. It didn't blow us away as I, I was hoping it would. Now, speaking of didn't exactly blow us away, let's talk about the strikers. Let's start with Ricardo Pepe. I think coming into this camp, uh, I, I think the general consensus was that Ricardo Pepe and Josh Sargent are our most informed strikers, and that probably didn't change coming out of this group. Uh, he had a really great goal against El Salvador. He, he spotted this opportunity to run behind. I think Brendan Aronson gets some credit there for opening that space, drawing out that center back. I, I think Weston McKinney really kind of, uh, there in the replay, you can see Brendan Aronson checking back and looking at the space. You can see Weston McKinney looking at the space. And then you see Ricardo Pepe pointing at the space uh, before the ball is actually played. You can see that the players kind of saw it coming before the play actually happened. But credit to Pepe for spotting that. And I think the thing that sets Pepe apart is whenever he does spot those moments, 
he does have the speed and the power combination to uh, get into those spots and, and and be able to hold off the defender. Um, and, and he also had a really nice finish there. Ricardo Pepe is one of those players that's just not really great at anything, but he's not necessarily bad at anything as well. He just offers you a whole lot in different areas of the field. Um, he, he had some great pressing out there. His holdup play was okay. His combination play was certainly better than DK's. He's got a strong soccer IQ. He does a lot of things well, and I think he's going to continue to be a part of the group, uh, at, at least for the time being. Daryl DK, on the other hand, uh, we know he's a very powerful guy. I was happy to see that he was pressing all over the field. I just don't think that he's good enough technically right now for this group. There was this one moment in particular where an El Salvadorian player was being pressured by Gio Reyna, and he made a pass back directly to Daryl DK's feet. And in the moment where the ball reached Daryl DK's feet, uh, Gio recognized it and he turned and charged and Dejas was in the middle and he was running at the goal. And it was a moment where the U.S. had a 3v2 or maybe a 3v3, but at least a 2v1 with Gio and DK. But it took DK so long to turn with the ball and take a, a positive touch that by the time that he actually got his body moving towards the goal, the player that the El Salvadorian player that initially played the pass backwards to DK, was able to catch the ball up and take possession away. And, and it's just a really frustrating moment. That was a spot where you would think that some of the more technical players in our pool would have been able to turn and run at the goal and maybe create something there. But DK just doesn't, doesn't really have that. And if we're going to play this style where we're moving the ball around on the ground and there's a lot of positional interchange and a lot of uh, really nice technical running off the ball, then I just don't really feel like DK, even though I, I love him as a, as a player and I love him as a, as a person, I think he's a real great dude, one of the great dudes in our pool. Um, I, I just wonder if he fits into this mix, if, if the less technical players have a spot on this team moving forward if we're going to continue to play as technically as we did. Now, if there's games where we're going to kind of muddy it up and throw balls into the box and and rely on uh, strength and physicality, then certainly DK is tremendous at that. Uh, but in the style of play that we put out in these two games, uh, it, he just didn't really fit. And and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he changes a little bit moving forward, but I just don't see him changing significantly enough to really be a factor in this group. I, I think I said it before, but I'll say it again. Falaren Balogun takes this group to another level. Uh, there's just nobody in our pool right now with the combination of technical ability with awareness, soccer IQ, and speed uh, that Balogun has. And I feel like if he was in this team, the U.S. probably would have scored a lot more goals. He has that ability to stretch the defense, which I don't. we don't really have many strikers that are doing that, uh, but also the ability to combine. I mean, he's, he's, he's a lot like a lot of our top strikers kind of combined um, with, with his abilities if he declares for the u.s which it seems pretty likely at this point considering all the song and dance that we saw with him visiting in orlando and holding up the yankees jersey and the orlando magic jersey and all that that it, it feels like balgan's leaning towards joining the u.s and i think that's that would be a tremendous boon for this group uh, there's just no player in our striker pool that at this moment in time uh, possesses his ability so those are my thoughts on the two game nations league window um, some, some good there, some really interesting stuff, some interesting, uh, thought ex exercises that we can have moving forward, particularly since, uh, Tyler Adams won't be available for, uh, a, a long time. It looks like uh, he's probably going to be out for the rest of the year, uh, after he's recovering from the surgery that he had during this window. Uh, so maybe the double pivots hitting at the exact right time. Uh, but your thoughts on, on what we saw. 
Uh, what were your thoughts on the newcomers in, in Taylor Booth and Zendejas, their, their debuts with the first team? What did you think about Gio Reyna, that 10 spot, and what he contributed? Uh, what did you think in, in, about the Luca Del Torre as a potential starter? Where do you think he sits with this group? Um, I, I know Pepe's a fan favorite, but do you feel like, are, are you as high on the potential of seeing Balogun as I am right now? I, I know the U.S. has a game coming up in April against Mexico. That lineup will probably be um, heavily uh, populated by MLS players. We probably won't see a lot of the European guys play. So we'll get an opportunity to check out the MLS contingent. We'll see that in April. Guys, thank you so much for watching. If you want the Yank Report podcast form, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for liking and subscribing. If you really want to support the channel, you can do so by becoming a member. Shout out to my tier two members, Manuel Alivetis, Matthew Doyle, Matthew Hanna, Michael Baker, Dan McVay, Mike Irish, Aaron M, Expats Everywhere, and Aaron Silva. Guys, thank you so much for watching. My name is Sam Stokes, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.